Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside Sportsnet play-by-play, John Bartlett. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again for coming on. Hey, great to be here, Michael. Uh, glad to be on with you. Let's rewind to the week before March break. You know, as we all know, that was kind of like the week where the coronavirus kind of set in for all of us. What do you remember exactly from that insane week? I'll tell you what, I remember a lot because that particular week, uh, we were in California and we were in San Jose, which at the time, um, that week I, I was doing the Leafs and then had a hockey night game on, on the Saturday with the Senators and Sharks. So so we were bouncing between San Jose and L.A. that week. And I remember at the time, Santa Clara County and San Jose was a hot spot when this was all beginning. And they were debating their, their councils, whether they should have any sporting events, whether should, they should have groups stay together. And so we did the game in San Jose, and then we went on to Los Angeles. And um, <laughs> it's crazy to think about it now, but we, we didn't know at the time. We even went to a, a concert the night before at the Staples Center. Uh, we, we were, you know, we had the hand sanitizer going every 30 seconds, it seemed. But, you know, who knew what we knew at the time anyways. And then uh, so we did the game in L.A. And when we were done the game in L.A., we knew we had to go back to San Jose for the Saturday. This was on a Thursday. We didn't even know if the game was going to be played at that point, or we thought maybe this will be the first of empty building games for a couple of weeks. I mean, that's what everybody knew at that time. So uh, we ended up doing the game with Ottawa, and uh, our crew came home, and we were pretty anxious to get out of California. And our director, uh, Mike Mills, he's a great director, great guy, and he said, I've never said this in my life. I can't wait to get to Edmonton and get out of California, as he had to go work an Oilers game. So... Uh, we didn't we didn't know what we were leaving at that time. And of course, uh, the senators stayed that week and they were through California when everything really picked up. And and it was, you know, the middle of that week where everything started to get shut down. So um, it, it, it was crazy to think of what it was like being in a, in a hot spot like that right at the start of this when we didn't really know anything of, of what it was going to be and what it would all entail. So uh, and here we are, fast forward almost a year later. I spoke with Eric Smith, who does uh, radio and TV play-by-play for the Raptors, the Toronto Raptors. And at the time of this coronavirus, you know, the Raptors had recently played with the Utah Jazz. And, you know, we all know what happened with Rudy Gobert and uh, that team. Did So you guys were in California at the time. You know, did you guys have to isolate when you got back home to Canada? Did you have to get a COVID test? Well, the testing hadn't even started yet. That was, um, you know, that, that, that was not even ready to go at that point. So um, we, it was just happened to be just the way our schedules were. We happened to have, I think it was over a week off anyways, um, just the way it felt. So we all kind of came back and we isolated anyways, just because we came back from a Western trip and, um, and it was a time change and everything. So usually we're a couple of days, we lay low anyways. And we happened to just fall on that. So, yeah, did we self-isolate? We kind of did. Not It wasn't a mandatory order at the time. We just sort of did, knowing, hey, what's going on? And like the rest of the world, trying to see what, you know, what this was all going to be and how it came about. So, um, looking back, probably, we were also probably lucky that just the schedule fell that way, that we didn't have a game to do in the next couple of days, because uh, it, now looking back, it probably wouldn't have been a good thing to do. We were fine, but you know, just it it would have been a smart thing to to isolate anyway. So now we know a lot more. It's crazy to me that, you know, not only did the players feel anxiety from this whole coronavirus, not knowing when their next game would be, but also the broadcasters did as well. Because you just mentioned that, you know, you really had no clue when your next game would be. 
Well, just like everybody, I think, you know, um, that whole week was ahead of the March break in Ontario. And, and, you know, they had announced, okay, March break will be extended two weeks. And I think, you know, maybe naive at that time for the first couple of days, you thought, okay, a couple of weeks, you know, we'll let this pass. And, and, and it didn't take very long. It was only a couple of days where you started to realize, hold on here. Uh, I don't know how kids can get back into school right now. I don't know how things can, you know, resume. And you saw what was starting to trend. And so, um, I don't think at that point anyone thought, holy cow, this, this is going to be, you know, months on end without a season. Um, as time progressed, and I think as everybody felt this way, and, and a lot of us talked about this, it's the hard part or the harder part of going through all this was not knowing, and, and this is for everyone, this is beyond hockey, beyond sports, this is life in a pandemic. The hardest part for people to deal with is not knowing the end date. Uh, when when will this end? When, you know, how will this end? When can we get it? If everybody knew, okay, by, you know, let's say um, April 1st of 2021, we're going to be out of this, then everyone would say, okay, and you would deal with that. You'd have a way to sort of, you know, mentally figure out how to get through to this date. But we ended up in, in a limbo. And for months, there was, you know, there was no certainty if there would be a vaccine, um, no certainty how sports or, or life would resume as normal. So I think just like everyone, you, you sort of went through not knowing what would be next or when it would be. So over time, I think we've adapted to um, adjusting to life during a pandemic. Uh, it still isn't easy for anyone. Uh, it still has a lot of curveballs thrown at you. But I, I think it sort of helped the progress to get to it. Now we have vaccines. And, and now sort of once you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, how you can get out of it, I think that's been a little bit better uh, for everyone. But yeah, a lot of us would talk about that. We just didn't know. We, when, when would the next game be? And, and what would it look like when we, when we did return? And how would it all work? And it's, uh, it's a much different environment um, that we're working in right now. And, um, you know, that's just part of what's going on and, and part of what we need to, to do as broadcasters to help uh, bring the games home to people so they can enjoy it and have that escape for a few hours right now. What did you start to do during quarantine that kept you busy most of the time? <laughs> Good question. Uh, try to spend time outdoors. Try to get some fresh air. Um, in, in the summertime, that probably helped, uh, you know, that you could be outside a lot. But yeah, as time went on, um, the longer it went on, it, you know, I think for everyone, it got tougher when, you know, when you didn't know what to do with yourself in a way and trying to find different things to do with yourself. So um, it, it was probably harder as time went on. And, and especially when you start rolling back around to what would be the fall and the start of the season again. Um, so actually for myself, I got uh, I got working on a little um a little project uh, that uh, I, I can't talk much about just yet. It's still, uh, it's not in the stages where I can go public with it yet, but it, it'll, when you hear about it, it'll be a very, very exciting project that I'm really excited about. And I've got a lot of um, really good partners and people that got on board with this. And um, I'm really excited, something I'll be able to do um, in the next uh, uh, next couple of weeks, uh, probably is when we'll, I'll get to start talking about it publicly. But it, it allowed me to have a little escape and um, sort of focus on something else that was positive and, and take your mind off of, um, or give your mind really something to do. So I, I really poured into this. So sorry, I can't give you more detail than that right now, but it's a, uh, it's a fun little project I've been working on and it'll be exciting when I get to talk about it. So 
we are all definitely looking forward to the project that you've been working on. Obviously, uh, you must have spent countless number of hours and, you know, I'm certainly uh, very hyped. Uh, you know, you've kind of hyped it up here a bit to say the least, but uh, I, I cannot wait for the full release. That's for sure. Well, when, when I get it, I'll be sure to uh, get in touch with you so you'll be able to uh, talk about it and you can promote it. <laughs> Getting into your story a bit here, you know, was there someone or a factor that kind of made you want to start sports journalism? Well, for myself, like many, I think, uh, I, you know, I played hockey myself and um, always loved it. My first sort of uh, touch with radio, I was nine years old and um, I was an evening character on an evening radio show in, in my hometown of Newmarket called the Rock and Roll Trolls. So I'd go on with uh, Punch Andrews at night and started on a Halloween night, actually, and um, did this Wolfman Jack voice. I can't even do that anymore. But anyways, uh, we had some fun with that. So I kind of got an itch from that. And um for me, yeah, it just sort of playing. And, and what led to broadcast for me is I actually started doing uh, some PA announcing for the local minor hockey uh, tournament, the closing weekend tournament every year. I was the PA announcer for that. That led to an opportunity to become the PA announcer for the local junior team in town, the 87s and Hurricanes uh, at the time. And um, that spawned an opportunity one night to, uh, I was just doing the music for a AAA game that happened to be broadcast on Rogers uh, community television on cable 10 and the uh, announcers who were supposed to show up and call that game tonight didn't show up so they asked me hey if you got somebody else to play the music for you you want to come down and try this in the booth so I did it and I loved it and that was the first game I called and um, I was just sort of out of the blue like that and and from that uh, that led to doing more minor hockey on on Rogers and then uh, to Junior C and Junior A and then the OHL, the AHL, the NHL and then Hockey Night in Canada. So um, sort of took the same route as a player uh, to go through all the levels. But uh, but that's how it began. And it was it was a fun ride to especially in my younger days. I was only 15 when I called that first game. And um, I, I guess, you know, when you look, <laughs> you look back at it, I was still playing at the same time. So. I even had a, a time period where I was calling games in the same league I was playing in. So one night, you know, I'm, I'm doing the game and then a couple nights later I'm playing against them and uh, weird times, but uh, you know, it was all part of the fun ride. Not only could you master the play-by-play -play side of it, but you could also master the, uh, the analysis uh, side of the job as well. Two and one. Well, you had to do that when, you know, there were a lot of nights in, in the, uh, in the OHL a bit on the road, uh, you know, you're on your own. But in the American Hockey League, um, you know, I did over 500 games in the AHL with the Toronto Marlies, but uh, we didn't travel any. In the American League, you, you don't travel with a color person, so you're on your own. And if that glass breaks, that, that's it. you got to figure it out. And, and I've had a couple, there's a couple really good stories I could get into on when you're stuck on your own. Not only are you your own um, analyst and color person, you're your own promo person, uh, you're your own engineer, which is the big part, because when stuff goes wrong, you're on the air, you've got to fix it. Um, I remember one night in Syracuse, uh, I lost the broadcast line while I was on, and I just picked up the phone and called my engineer back at the station. He's like, you're off. I said, I know. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Pot me up. <laughs> He's what? I said, pot me up. We'll fix it in the intermission. And I just called the rest of the period off my phone. And, you know, we, we waited till we got to the intermission to fix the broadcast line. So you had to be quick. You had to, you know, come up with different ideas. And I remember a, a playoff uh, series against the Grand Rapids Griffins on the road in Grand Rapids. And it was, oh, a triple overtime night or something. Whale of a game. 
but every intermission now it's like, how do you fill this one? And you know, you're anyone you're scrambling to find here, jump on, fill time. And and of course you got to work in the bathroom breaks too. So when you're all on your own, um, you know, and I think if that sort of teaches you, um, you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot of how to handle situations, how to handle uh, different kinds of games and, and scenarios that might happen and how to weave the way through them. So, um, you know, I, I highly, I even say this for players. I think every player should go through the American Hockey League. I think every broadcaster should go through the American Hockey League. I think you need to have that time to develop part of your craft and, and that'll, that'll help you in situations when you, you get into them in the NHL and, how did you handle that? Well, it reminded me of this night in, in Rochester, you know, or whatever. There's always a story linked to it that you can get through it. I just want to speak upon your time with the OHL there. You started your uh, career with the Barry Colts in the OHL. What yep. was one thing that, you know, stood out from your time with the Colts? Um, hmm. Well, you know, one of the, one of the great stories and that I remember, uh, I mean, I, I had a great, uh, run and Barry, and there's a lot of fun and a lot of stories I could talk about. But, but the one that I think I go back to, uh, because it's so different when you think of how it is now and how things have changed with the the sports pack and how the OHL ended up having, um, you know, every game on television and you you could watch them all, even the games in the states. Well, back when I was in Barry, the 2002 OHL championship, uh, the Barry Colts played the Erie Otters. And uh, we had a station manager in Barry, Mike Patterson, who came from a broadcast side from CKVR, actually. And so uh, he was great in trying to uh, develop different ways of doing things. So when we got to the OHL final, Erie never at that time uh, didn't have, a tel well, they had a television broadcast team there, uh, but games were not shown out of the United States on Rogers in Canada. It wasn't done like that. So he actually devised a plan where we partnered with a, um, a broadcast team down there, a broadcast company. We had a satellite truck. And the 2002 OHL finals were the first time that Rogers ever produced games outside of Canada. And we traveled down and did the games. And I, I mean, now it sounds like an easy thing to do, but, but that was sort of the first time it ever happened in the 02 finals. So, um, and that was a great championship series run. Erie won that year, but um, I always, that's one of the things that always stands out for me from my time in Barry uh, was that, that, that we sort of changed the mold a bit and were uh, the first to do that. And, and that was pretty cool. And I remember being in Erie and, and the other thing is we broadcast games back to Erie and uh, the rink was sold out down there. The otters were huge at that time. There were scalpers getting a couple hundred bucks a ticket uh, to get into the games. And, and I remember uh, being in Erie and, and going into a shop one day, just, a, uh, I don't remember, I think it was getting a newspaper and a snack or something. And the shop owner recognized, I was with my color guy, and they recognized us. They're like, you're the guys on the TV. Oh, and I'm like, well, how popular has it been? He says, are you kidding? Everyone's been watching it. You go down the main street on a game night and it's packed and the bar's got the sound up and the satellite feed of your games and all. Uh, so it was kind of cool to see like both, you know, you know, both communities sort of get behind the, the series, but it's because it was, that was new. It was, it was before even the internet. We had only started just audio webcasting at the time. It was not anything like it is now. So that was a big deal to be able to watch the road games on TV in Erie because they were never shown back there like that. So, so that was kind of cool. And there were a lot of other um, uh, great stories and memories that come from Barry, but just as a, uh, that one in particular, as sort of, you know, devising how 
how we would uh, come up with this idea to, to broadcast out of the States for the first time was pretty cool. Well, yeah, I mean, when you definitely contrast it to today's, you know, I guess, broadcasting standards, uh, it's definitely crazy to think about uh, how simple of a task it is nowadays to, uh, you know, contrast it with how difficult it was back then. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing now. I think the Internet really changed all that. Um, you know, uh, as I said, when, geez, when we started in Barry, we were one of the first teams to start just doing audio webcasting of games and that was a new concept uh which now is i mean you know you look at so many leagues that have video feeds of the game which is great for families and parents to to watch everywhere but also it's great for announcers um and aspiring announcers to to have somewhere to to practice your craft and hone your craft and there's nothing wrong with doing webcast games of a you know a junior c or junior a league and, and and working on it and any chance you have, and you know, a lot of people always ask advice on this. And I said, any opportunity you have to call games and, and get practice and work on it is great. And the webcasting allows an actual live audience. Sure, it may only be nine people and seven of them are parents. That's okay. There's still that that you know live link of an audience that's watching and listening that gives you that ability to practice those moments that you can't get on just recording on tape. So, you know, as much as the landscape has changed um, for all that in, in different levels of hockey and broadcast, I think that the one part about the Internet and the webcasting uh, has really been able to open a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities for, for young aspiring broadcasters to have a place to practice and try. You moved on to calling Toronto Marlies games, like you mentioned. You know, the AHL and the NHL rosters change, you know, very often between the two teams. How did you make sure to stay on top of transactions that happen between the Maple Leafs and the Marlies since the roster was always changing? Yeah, you know what? It wasn't the call-ups to the NHL that you worried about so much. That that was pretty standard. It was uh, the domino effect that happens in the American Hockey League where every time you had some call-ups, now you had to fill the roster. And where were they drawing players in from? And, you know, whether it was the ECHL or PTOs with professional tryout offers. And, and, and then once you got past the, the trade deadline and the, um, uh, the roster cutoff that you had to put in, then the door opened even more where they could expand rosters and you had college players coming in. And, and oh my goodness, I, I tell you, there's, you know, uh, in some seasons, you would go through uh, 55 players, you know, on some teams and, and just bringing guys in and trying them out and they'd be in for a few games. And um, so it and especially, as I said, as the season went on and you got past that cutoff deadline, that even became trickier. So, um, you know, and this would happen with every team that you would play too with call ups and it's just a domino effect. So uh, certainly that would be tricky sometimes. And, and inevitably, you'd have a game where someone got called up, you know, a few hours before they drove in from wherever. And in the warm-up, you're looking out on the other team or whatever going, who's this number, you know, 19? And then you got to go ask your buddy, hey, who's, I don't know, guy we just brought in. I barely have anything on. So, you know, you're scrambling beforehand and things are, you know, a little more accessible now um, uh, when it comes research-wise. But yeah, you'd have some scenarios where we'd all have a chuckle about that. We'd have our uh, our broadcasters, especially in the American League, we'd always, you know, catch up before the game, talk with each other to see what was going on. Um, and yeah, you'd always have a laugh when you'd have a few guys coming in. What do you know about this guy? Nothing really. He just showed up in his car at four o'clock today. So uh, it's kind of funny when that would happen. 
How do you know that you're calling a game for a budding star in the AHL? Like, uh, you know, we, we can, I, I personally, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Habs fan, but I really like the play of Justin Hall right now for the Leafs. And, you know, um, just speaking on your time with the AHL, how do you know that, you know, you're calling a game with this high, you know, high touted prospect that's going to make the NHL one day? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because it's it's really tricky and it's funny because um, you sometimes have players that can be great stars in the American Hockey League uh, and, and it, it just doesn't work for them in the NHL level. Then you'll have players that are really good players at the American Hockey League that become really solid NHLers. And you think, well, I, I saw the pieces to that uh, and, and people try to equate, well, how come it didn't work or how come it did work? And uh, there is a difference to the game. There's, there's that little, that little step. It's a big step. And I think it's how you handle that adjustment. You know, I think of, um, well, if you want to use a, a Montreal example, you, uh, you probably remember uh, uh, Corey Locke when he played for Hamilton. And, you know, Corey, a, a good new market boy, uh, could put up the points. Man, he could put up the points for the Bulldogs. And then you get the chance in the NHL that just didn't click the same way. And part of that is, you know, when you call up, a top six forward and put them on a fourth line in the NHL, they're not a fourth line player. And, and people go, oh, well, they didn't do anything. Well, because you're trying to get a, a top six and a bottom six and it doesn't always work. And, and there's, there's variables that, that happen along the way. And I could go through a list of, of some really good scoring AHL stars, Darren Hadar, Jason Krog. Um, you know, these were really good American Hockey League players that just never seemed to, to, to get the chance to click in the NHL. And then you'll have others that, yeah, are just sort of steady American Hockey League players, but they developed all the right things and the right tools. So when they get to the NHL, um, it, I don't want to say it becomes easier because that's not the right way, but things become a little more structured. And sometimes you have players that understand that structure and fit into that mold so well, and that's why they become successful at the NHL level. And then sometimes you have players that fit into the chaos that can happen sometimes in the American Hockey League and that's why they're successful there. So, um, yeah, it's kind of tricky, you know, when you were watching players to determine who might uh, who might have it. And it's just that you could see sometimes that little something, especially in goaltenders, too. Um, you know, you really kind of spotted that where in the American League, you don't know what the shot was going to do or it would have, you know, uh, is it going to be the pass? How's the defense we're going to play it? Where in the NHL just seems to have that little extra structure to it. And, and that's where you can elevate your game. But um, then you'll have some players come through the American League where you, you just knew. I remember Carey Price's run uh, with the Hamilton Bulldogs where he came in from Tri-City. And uh, there's a great story to that. When, when I'll tell this one for you since you're a Canadians fan. Uh, so Carey Price was coming from Tri-City to play with the Bulldogs in the last couple of year, uh, games of the regular season before the playoffs were to start. And this year they went all the way, won the Calder Cup. He won the MVP and he was a star. So he gets picked up from the airport. And I believe, if I remember the story correctly, it was A.J. Baines, I think, that picked him up. And they brought him back. And so he's at the house and, and Baines is on the phone with a friend or family member saying, yeah, we picked up the new goalie today. Oh, Carey Price. Yeah, he's here. And Oh, yeah. Oh, really? And so they're telling them on the phone, well, do you know the last rookie for the Canadians that came out of junior, went in the American League uh, and won the whole thing and went on to the NHL? And they're like, it was Patrick Waugh. He came out of Granby and he, he went into Sherbrooke, won the whole Calder Cup. And he was so AJ turns to Kerry and says, hey, did you know uh, 
you know, Patrick Waugh did this. He came in from junior, went all the way and won the Calder Cup. And Kerry said, oh, that's all I have to do. And then he goes out and did it. So it was, you know, I mean, obviously he was joking, but that is what happened. He had a couple of games at the end of the regular season, got in the playoffs, got on a tear, won the Calder Cup, and, uh, you know, the rest is history that way. So, uh, but but you will have players like that, right, that just, that that are able to do it and and, and sort of um, show that right away that they can they can become a star in the NHL. How rewarding of a feeling was it to have yourself, you know, you worked your way up the ladder to now call, or well, you used to call games on TSN for the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah, well, I, you know, for me, I, I started on radio in Montreal and uh, that's where I went from the American League. Uh, and, you know, it was a, it was a great experience to be able to do that and, and to um, move from radio to TV where Sportsnet had the rights for three years and then I went back to TSN with a year uh, of the rights there before um, uh, moving on from that package to more of the national games of Sportsnet again but um, you know what I'm so fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to um, do two original six teams really being in Montreal and Toronto like that but um, you know just to uh, to have that ability to, to go in and do the Canadians every night and, and with the history of the team and, and being able to um, uh, be a part of so much of that history as in getting to, you know, make friendships with some players that, uh, that you know, you'd watch back in the day and now you're golfing with them and losing their money when you're duffing it into the woods. But that's a whole other story. And I'm sure Guy Carbonell will want to golf with me again some other time, but <laughs> um, we should have played 18 that day. Other story. Anywho, uh, you know, it's, it's part of being a part of that history. And, um, you know, there's, there's so many friendships uh, that I made from that too. Uh, Dick Irvin being one of them, especially, and Dick and I still talk all the time and uh, swapping stories and, you know, and, and Danny Gallivan stories. And so to be able to hold the same chair uh, that, that they did, uh, Dick and Danny, uh, was something really special and something to cherish for sure. And, and still is. Every time I get a chance to do, you know, a game in Montreal and, and a hockey night game, um, as is with any time you get a chance to do a hockey night game, you're carrying on the legacy of, you know, of those uh, those stars uh, of our, of our, uh, you know, our generation and, and what hockey night all meant with, you know, Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin and Bob Cole. And, um, you know, now, you know, uh, to work alongside with Chris Cuthbert and Jim Houston, you know, who's just in the hall of fame. And um, it's just, it's an honor to be able to, to carry along uh, the torch really of, of what it means to be part of such an iconic brand and, and to hold the high standard. I think you have to follow for those that, that, that did it before you and live up to uh, to what they brought. So um, it's pretty special. You mentioned that, you know, you basically commentate, you know, two original six teams, the Leafs and the Habs. You know, I was very fortunate enough to uh, go to a Montreal and uh, Toronto game in in the Bell Centre. You would know better than basically anyone else. Uh, how electric can that atmosphere be in the Bell Centre? Yeah, certainly it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the, best buildings in the league um and people always ask that what's your favorite building and i say okay well on on what are you looking for what category uh but M montreal when you're in the seat in the bowl for the game it's uh it's one of the best if not the best in the league for sight lines for atmosphere and especially when the canadians are playing well and the leafs are playing well and you get the rivalry going there um it, it's a ton of fun it's a great atmosphere it's always a loud saturday night um when those two go head to head so 
it's uh, you, you would have experienced it. And, you know, the volume's turned up a little more. The energy's turned up a little more. And then everyone wants to get out on Crescent Street afterwards. All the Leaf fans do. So um, it, it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, it, those nights always have any night you have a rivalry night, you know, whether it was the Canadians and the Bruins, uh, the Leafs and the Canadians, Leafs in Ottawa, even that Battle of Ontario. Uh, when those two are going, it, the standings don't matter. Um, and so some nights like that, it's you, you get in and the crowd gets into it and just everything else falls to the wayside standings wise. And it becomes all about the energy of the night. And, and those nights can be really fun. After a few years, you are now with Sportsnet. How big of a transition was that switching networks for you? Well, you know, I say how fortunate I am um, that I've been able to do two original six teams. I'm also incredibly fortunate that I've been able to work for two networks and uh, twice, actually. Um, and, and, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's pretty cool. And to have an opportunity to work with a lot of great people in our industry um, that work so hard to bring all the games and uh, making a lot of great friendships and relationships along the way. So um, how, how hard is it? The, the job is, is the same. Um, you know, it's when it comes down to it, it's all about the game and, and, uh, and the players that are on the ice and, and having some good entertainment. So, uh, but I do find myself very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to work with, alongside uh, so many great people that, uh, you know, that are in our industry that, that bring hockey to everyone. So um, I feel very fortunate for that. Some of the people that you've worked with are, you know, Scott York, as well as Greg Millen. How important is it for you to develop that chemistry with the color commentator to make sure that the commentary flows better? Yeah, I mean, that's that always, I think, comes across on the air when you can tell there's a great relationship out there. And Jason York and I, uh, uh, we did the Montreal show together for, for three years and uh, Yorkie and I are good buddies. Um, and we had a lot of fun. We did a lot of fun things on our show, too. And um, you know, that was credit to uh, also to <laughs> the creative mind uh, uh, that we had working with us. Uh, producer Scott Lennox, uh, he'd come up with some crazy stuff that we have, uh, especially in our last season there. Uh, and, and Kyle Vakoskis. And, oh, man, we look, we still laugh. We'll play the old reel of some of the stuff we did on that show. And, and everyone was entertained by it. And that's what it's all about. You know, we want to we want to have some fun and entertainment. But, yeah, I, I think it's, it's important when you have a great relationship um, with your color person because uh, I think that comes out on the air. Uh, Greg Millen and I are good friends too. And, um, you know, I think we, we had a lot of fun and uh, enjoy when we get to work together. And um, re really, I have good relationships with everyone that I get to work with. Gary Galley and I are paired together a lot. And, uh, you know, Gals and I always swap the old uh, war stories back in the day playing too. And um, so, you know, I mean, it, it all comes down to a love of the game and, and a love of what we're doing. And so um, I think that that probably is what, comes through but yeah i've been fortunate to have a lot of a lot of great colored people i've, I've worked with and uh, and had relationships with, and still do you know even once i, I worked with you you talk about tsn and um dave poolin uh, craig button mike johnson uh stay in touch with with them a lot too and you know and we're always busy in, in the hockey world where you know we're always going different directions so we don't always get a chance to catch up but we'll we'll keep in touch with each other to see how things are going and uh, so yeah I'm, you know it's it's been great to have uh, great people like that you get a chance to work with and, and keep those relationships. During this past summer, we figured out how the NHL would return with, uh, you know, the adopted bubble that NASCAR actually did first. And that's when we figured out that the bubble was actually safe enough to do. What was your perspective, you know, during the months leading up to uh, this summer's NHL playoffs uh, on how the NHL would come back? 
Well, we, we heard for a while it probably would be a bubble scenario, and that probably was, you're right, the safest bet uh, at the time. It worked for the situation that was in hand. Um, it worked for uh, also the time we were at in the summer. And, and remember where the numbers were, we were also in a bit of a different situation, uh, especially in Canada. Um, and hopefully we get back to that and beyond that soon uh, in an even better way. So I think it always made sense uh, to do that. I think it was also realistic to understand that the players would only want to do that just to complete that season and have the playoffs. It, it wouldn't have been a realistic scenario to try and do, uh, you know, a full bubble situation again for an entire season. Um, that, that logistics of that just wouldn't work. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out the best way to move forward now uh, was obviously the challenge of, yeah, the bubble worked, but uh, it probably wouldn't work in a full season situation, but it certainly made sense at the time to, to go that route and, uh, and they got through it and the Tampa Bay Lightning are certainly happy that they did. So uh, it worked out for them for sure. <laughs> Crowdless games are now something that, you know, is a part of our normal life, I guess you could say, uh, you know, I, yeah. we can put that in quotations, um, but you know, arenas are now opening up uh, to a limited capacity. We saw that with uh, the NFL, which was done, I think, successfully, uh, in my opinion. I, you know, there's only a bit, I think, one report uh, that had a fan test positive. Either way, are you for or are you against arenas opening up to fans? Um, when the time is right, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it, as long as it's safe for everyone. And the challenge you have to remember with hockey, basketball, it, it, indoor sports, right? Um, it's a little different when you can socially distance in outdoor stadiums for baseball and football and NASCAR. Um, but I, you have to remember we're still indoors. And it's, it's more than just where people sit. Um, there's logistics involved. You have to think of when you come in and out of the building. And yep. yeah, even if you had a crowd of only 5,000, if all 5,000 people still try to leave through the same doors at the same time, you've got crowding, you've got uh, washrooms to consider, you've got concession stands, the concourses. There, there's a lot more to it than just, you know, spread out the way you see it when everyone is seated on television. So um, I, I think we will get back to it. I think that's how we're going to get back to it. I think it'll be a slow ramp up, um, you know, of, of slowly working fans back in. Um, sooner, the better, but it's got to be safe. So, you know, when the time's right. Yeah, I just want to add on, like, you know, hopefully everyone can follow the rules that are, you know, mandated by health and safety, because uh, that will obviously be uh, the end result in how we uh, diminish the coronavirus cases. Yeah. And I mean, when you think of it, you hope for that. And yet there's yeah. still people going the wrong way down the arrows in the grocery store aisle. So, you know, you hope for the best. But, uh, you know, we're heading the right way. And I know it's, you know, I think, and this is just to go off the sports topic for just a moment, but I think we were feeling a lot of positive vibes just before the holidays, um, you know, with where things were going, vaccine rollout. And we we hit this lull here with delivery slowdown. And, and I think people have felt that and, you know, the lockdowns and the stay at home orders. So uh, I'm hoping now things are starting to roll back and everyone will start to have those positive feelings again. And, and that, you know, we're going to get out of this and we're on our way out of it. So just try to stick, you know, stick to it, stay strong about it and, and have a positive feeling to it. And, and we'll, we'll get out of it a little sooner than, uh, than we all hope.
The last time we really had full arenas was back in March of 2019 uh, or 2020, I should say. Uh, you know, you know, when, um, is there a you know a specific game that you know you want to reminisce on, uh, or you know that you kind of go back to in your memory when there were full crowds in the arena? Yeah, you know, like um, if you go back to the playoffs of 2019. It would be 2019 because 2020 we had the TARPs. Okay, so go back to the playoffs of of 2019 and the New York Islanders getting back in the playoffs and playing at the old Nassau Coliseum again. And they had that first round series sweep against Pittsburgh Penguins and and I was on working that series. Uh, Those two games in the Coliseum were just unbelievably energetic and the crowd was so loud and you felt it. And I remember even in game two, you could feel my chair shaking a little in the booth. That, that building was all oh, that barn was going and it was so fun. It was, everyone was into it and the energy and the excitement. And it just translated right through with, you know, that whole series. And then round two, they play Carolina and Carolina swept them, uh, but they went to Brooklyn and the atmosphere wasn't the same, even though the crowd had to truck out there, but Carolina then was rocking with it. And um, so, you know, I remember those. And then even the, uh, the multiple overtime game, seven St. Louis and Dallas, um, the Pat Maroon uh, winner on that one. And, um, you know, the energy in those, the playoffs is when you really, really feel it. But, but those games, though, particularly in Nassau Coliseum with the Islanders from the 2019 playoffs, holy cow, when people talk about, did you ever, what you're talking about, do you ever really feel a crowd? And I've, you know, been in some really loud buildings and there's some great energy, Montreal and Vegas and, you know, even Chicago back in some, I, I could list up a bunch, but that one particular was, holy cow, the energy in the, in the old barn there for those couple of games was unbelievable for the Islanders. Did it take a while for you to adjust to crowdless games? So here's the way I approach that. People have asked about that, you know, and not knowing what to expect. And, you know, there is the the piped in crowd noise that you hear. uh, And it is completely different when you're in the building, even when you hear that, to experience it. So, you know, people have asked about that. And here's the way I approach it. And I hope the viewer at home understands um, this approach, too. So... I look at it as right now, the way the NHL is, is being done, it's a made for television event. Um, so mm-hmm. you go into the building, we see the tarps, we know the seats are empty. Uh, but the funny thing about it is, you know that everyone is watching. So you don't feel that it's empty. Even though I don't see you there, I know you're there. I know you're watching. Yeah. And, and for all the fans, right? So I hear the piped in, and usually I love having a lot of the crowd noise in my headset. Uh, the piped in's a little different, but it's a nice little mix to have in just to kind of blend in everything you're doing. But, mm-hmm. but I sort of approach it as this is a made-for-TV event. Uh, the arenas right now are set up sort of like sound stages, if you will, mm-hmm. and 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 we're there to to play the games and entertain the fans and bring that energy and entertainment of the game uh, back home to the viewer. So, but that again, that theory of and I'll, I'll take an example of this, uh, the game I did Calgary and Montreal uh, while Quebec was under the curfew orders. So it's a Saturday, uh, downtown Montreal, and it's quiet. And, and that is not normal around the Bell Centre to have on a Saturday, nobody around the building. You know, usually there's a buzz and, and everything. So we do the game and, and you knew that. You knew it was quiet because you knew everyone was home. 
So you knew everyone was watching the game and you knew about the curfew. And after the game, we come out of the building to, to go back to the hotel and there is nobody outside. That nobody. so weird. It was. And, and you cross uh, René Levesque Boulevard, the big yeah. uh, street, um, which is normally bumper to bumper traffic after a game. There's police blocking the streets, getting the cars, the traffic. And, and you've got to, you know, wait and the lights and the people and all the cars. Well, we walked out and, and not to uh, break a law or anything here, but we jaywalked across the street because there was nobody on the road. The street was empty. There wasn't a car in sight. And it's not even like that at four in the morning on that road. Uh, so friends have told me, I wouldn't know that personally, but uh, it, it was incredible to see that. But but that also just reminded you of, of where everyone was. So everyone's at home watching the game. So yes, the building is empty. Yes, the seats aren't there, but I never felt like the crowd wasn't there. I, you know, it's kind of that approach of, I heard you yelling from your couch. I know you're there. Um, and, and that's the approach uh, that I take to it uh, right now with, with the empty buildings is the building is empty, but the fans are there and, and they're just as important as always. So um, try to bring that made for TV event and make it feel as normal, right? Hockey sports, we're united by, by sport in a way that it's our escape. And, and right now, you know, that, that frontline worker that had that long, hard day is looking forward to coming home and putting their feet up on the couch, putting the game on and forgetting what's going on. That's why part of the reason we watch sports is an escape to forget and to, to get out of reality. And, and right now people need some of that to, to escape reality. And so I, I think the more we can, um, for lack of better explanation, the more we can normalize the experience for the viewer. We know it's not normal, but the more we can let you dive into that escape a little more, I think the better it is and the more fun it is. How has COVID switched up your daily routine to go to games? Because you touched on it a little bit there, but, you know, that was uh, with COVID, but, you know, just how different is it nowadays? Yeah, um, our travel's a little different, obviously. And, and you know, that's reflected in just the way we've done some of our scheduling to try and stay a little closer and um, with all our crews. And um, so that's a little different. The way we travel is a little different. But when it comes to the actual game, uh, um, the routine, obviously, of getting into the building is much different. Our day routine, any conversations we have with coaches or players is, is done through Zoom. Um, you know, so even on a, on a road game where normally you might walk over to the morning skate, you're not doing that. Everything's on Zoom. And you talk to the coach from your hotel room on a Zoom. And, um, and then the actual building itself, you know, there's different protocols to get in. There's different categories, uh, groups that were all set in and different groups can't talk to other groups. So um, normally on a, on a game day, I would go down to the truck. I'd go in our production truck, see our crew, talk to everyone, say hi. We don't even go into that area now. It's kind of straight in, straight to the booth, uh, straight back out. And there's a lot of protocol along the way. Um, so what, you know, what would normally be uh, a chance to go in and talk to people and see people, it's kind of in and out direct and everything's done by phone and Zoom. And um, so it changes your routines. Um, but we all adapt to it just like everybody else has had to during this and, and we'll get through it. It's, it's okay. In the end, we're, we can still get the game back home to the viewer. Then, then that's fine. That's what it's all about. Speaking on the production part there, it must be, you know, really hard to develop that chemistry that is so important to deliver a broadcast that is top notch. Like you uh, explained earlier on how you want to live up to those expectations. 
Yeah, it's a challenge for everyone. Um, but, you know, I mean, our, our, our crew, we're experienced. Um, we have some great production technical people that have, you know, been working on this. And, and everyone is collaborating on this as well. And, um, uh, you know, the way it's being produced, it's probably been talked about, but the way it's produced is there's a home feed in every building. And, and you know, the road teams are taking their show from those feeds. So there's been a lot of great collaboration. Um, yeah, is there going to be some hiccups? There might be along the way, and, and that's going to happen. But I think everyone appreciates, um, you know, everything is not running normally right now, and everyone is doing the best they can to to bring the best production under the circumstances they can home to the viewer. And, yeah, there's going to be some glitches, uh, but, you know, it's just a, a case of the times right now. So um, everyone's just adapting to, to doing what they have to do and, and keeping safety first in mind. And, and right now there are some things where safety dictates – what we can and can't do on a broadcast and uh that's that's just the world we live in right now and you know we, we work around it the hype surrounding this nhl 2021 season has to be for the canadian north division just how exciting is it for you to you know commentate a game that has full canadian teams that's been a lot of fun right uh you know and i think it's ramped up the the intensity of the fan bases too in every market uh you know you go on a couple game slide and everybody's panicking and Calgary and Vancouver was, you know, two games and all of a sudden everyone was losing their mind. Um, so, but I mean, that's part of the fun too. And having that, that all Canadian uh, content, we, I think fans also know, you know, this is a one-off. So sort of enjoy and appreciate uh, the fun you have with this right now. And, and, and as fun as this is, I, I think everyone also appreciates the one-off being fun, but doing this all the time wouldn't be, um, you know, you'd miss seeing everyone else. So uh, it's kind of just go with the punches, go with the ride right now, but it's the fan bases that are having an incredible time with it. So it's, uh, it's great to, to get in on that and, and enjoy that fun too. So far, the Canadian division has played 100% of its games. It hasn't had a COVID outbreak issue so far. Uh, you know, in theory, do you think that uh, the Canadian division could potentially finish uh, older games before, you know, uh, before the East division? Well, well, first of all, fingers crossed it stays that way, right? And, um, yeah. you know, obviously it's a different, uh, overall it's a different situation in Canada than it is in the United States right now. There's less teams and the travel's a little different. But, um, yeah, I mean, the NHL has built in a, a window where they, they have some time uh, to have some makeup games before the playoffs if they have to. They, you know, were prepared for this scenario. I don't think they were prepared for delayed games because of weather in Dallas. That one caught them off guard. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it is a possibility. And that's, it's funny you bring that up because I'd actually talked about that a week ago. I said, geez, what could happen if, you know, these other divisions are still going maybe a week longer while the Canadian division sits? How will that affect? Well, the one thing is it will be the same for every Canadian team. If they end up having to sit a few extra days, they're all sitting a few extra days and then they all play each other, um, you know, because you're not going to see until the third round that crossover. So by then everyone would have caught up. Yeah, that's true. Or, you know, one idea could be to, you know, start the Canadian division playoffs already. And let's say, because third round, right, there's cross border. So you host the playoffs in the uh, in the States and have the Canadian teams uh, quarantine there. Uh, and then by the time that uh, the U.S. are finished their playoffs, uh, the Canadian teams would be finished their quarantine. That's just my thinking of it. Oh, yeah. No. And and uh, that's, you know, there's good thought to that, too. But then you would probably have the concern or complaints of teams either not wanting to have that long of a layoff or 
being the opponent saying, well, you know, we just came out of two grueling seven game series and now we're facing a team that's, you know, had a week or more rest. So, um, but anyways, you know, as, as close as that seems, it's still as far as way as it seems uh, when it comes to the playoffs in May. And, um, you know, right now, everything, we just kind of have to live week by week and the season. So, uh, and maybe things will change by then too, uh, in, in May, you know, by that point, things might look a little different and, and hopefully they do, hopefully they do. And, and, you know, we'll have a different conversation. So we'll see how it goes. Patience is the key with all of this, uh, safety first and patience. Prior to the coronavirus outbreak, as a broadcaster, you would research uh, if there was a Canadian versus American team, you know, let's say Chicago and Montreal, you would do some research on Chicago and how they've been doing recently. But now with the Canadian division, have you been watching less American games and more focusing on that Canadian division? Trying to watch less hockey. Yeah. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Isn't that a challenge? Um, Yeah, I think... um, I think what happens, you end up a little more because we have this, as you, you know, you talked about that intensity of the all Canadian division. I think you end up gravitating more uh, to the Canadian side because that's what we're dealing with all the time right now. Uh, But it is still fun to flip over and, and, you know, keep tabs on everything else that's going on in the league. It's tricky enough as it is to follow 31 and what will, you know, soon be 32 teams. Um, But obviously there's always the little extra intense, uh, uh, intense attention on the Canadian division right now. So um, you find yourself channel surfing a lot, that's for sure, but you're probably spending a little more time on the Canadian games uh, when you're stopped uh, uh, watching one of them before flipping over to see what's going on south of the border. You bring up that 32nd team, which would be the Seattle Kraken. How excited are you for the new expansion team? Because they have some pretty high expectations to live up to. Yeah, well, Vegas set the bar pretty high, didn't they? And, and and I think, you know, what everyone learned in the league about how Vegas operated last time, I don't think we're going to see that again. I don't think teams are going to want to go down that road again with what they did. Uh, you know, they're not going to want to hand Seattle anything. So the Kraken are going to have a little bit more of a difficult time uh, than Vegas did, I think, in the expansion draft because teams are going to say, nope. We're not dealing. Just take our player and move on. But, um, you know, I think it'll be really exciting. I think it'll be a great market. I think it's going to be a great market for Vancouver um, to have sort of that close rivalry, you know, um, great hockey market. Um, I I think it'll be pretty exciting. And they've got a lot of of good things going there. And, you know, I just think it'll be the expectations can't be the same as what Vegas pulled off. Um, because I, I don't think it's going to happen the same way. But, but that's not to discourage anything that Seattle will be able to put together and do. Um, and I think it'll be a lot of fun to, to have 32 and balance, balance the divisions. You know, um, that'll be great as well to have an even number of teams across in the league. We saw our first cross-border trade between the Winnipeg Jets and the Columbus Blue Jackets earlier this season. Did you ever expect to hear or see a cross-border trade? Because I know personally I didn't expect one. Yeah, the tricky part about that, of course, is the border and the and the quarantine time. And um, you know, if you're making that trade, especially if you're a Canadian team, the player you're trading for will be a couple of weeks uh, before you can get them in your lineup to help you. So, uh, did I expect to see it? I think so. I just thought it would be uh, we might not see a lot of it. Um, and, and when you look at the deal, you know that that was a pretty big trade to make. Obviously, moving Patrick Line and Jack Roslevic and Pierre Luc Dubois; those are some big names. Um, I, I think you probably won't see as many of those with um, 
sort of lesser names or uh, anything like that. If a big trade was going to happen like that, it was going to happen anyway. So um, it's those little minor deals that sometimes during the season would pop up more. You probably won't see those cross-border. And then in the States, it's different. They, they could trade back and forth. But the Canadian teams, um, the, the, you know, there's, there's so much competition against each other that they might be nervous to do any deals within their own division right now, too, because you don't really want to help any other team or figuring out what's going on with the points every night. Um, so there might be a little more cautious uh, um, sort of progression for any uh, all-Canadian deals, that's for sure. And, you know, if you do trade within the Canadian division, uh, that might just spark up the rivalry even more. Well, what you could have, and, and we saw this a little bit with Alex Galchenyuk, you could have three-way trades happen, and that would be how you could skirt, uh, not, not skirting the rules, but that could be how you get around direct Canadian team trades. And, you know, you could trade one player to the States, and then uh, that player gets traded back and three went to another Canadian team, but the player doesn't leave the country, doesn't have to cross borders and have to quarantine. So um, that, that could get creative if, if teams got into that, that's for sure. But a shortened season, you don't have much time to, to um, you know, to sort of analyze any deals like that you may or may not want to make. So uh, you have to see how it goes. How are you liking how the NHL is handling just the amount of outbreaks that have happened this, uh, this season? It's a challenge, right? And and the one thing about this, and this is the you know the deal and the agreement that they've had with the NHLPA is is you have to uh, you have to trust the players too. Um, you know some of this falls on on self policing, um, and, and you know if you want to get through this, you've got to you've got to be smart about it. So there's some things that you know I, I think end up being just almost unavoidable. Um, and you just have to be as, as careful and as smart as you can. So um, how are they handling it? Well, I think they're handling it as best they can, remembering they're not playing in a bubble situation. I think baseball went through this uh, when they were playing. I think they've been as cautious as they can be. They've adapted, uh, you know, protocols as much as they can moving along. Um, they've been mindful of scheduling and travel, and, and I think they're trying as hard as they can. So, you know, under the circumstance, uh, if you want to play and you want to have games and you don't want to be in a bubble situation, um, this, is, this is what you've got to be prepared to work around. So I think they're doing the best they can uh, under the circumstance. And, and you have to have, as I said, you have to have a little hope and, and trust that there's some self-policing going on too. We witnessed TSN go on a purge of relieving on-air talents as well as cutting radio stations. Many sports uh, media journalists and broadcasters have spoken about this issue. Would I be able to get your word just about what had happened at TSN uh, cutting that, uh, you know, cutting their staff? Well, anytime there's there's changes or cutbacks like that in our industry, it, it's never a good thing for our industry at all. Um, this isn't about competition. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of friends. I have a lot of, a lot of friends and colleagues that I've worked with that uh, got caught up in that. Um, and, you know, they have families, they, they have lives, they have passion for doing their job and, and doing it well and enjoying it. Um, and it, it shook them to the core, obviously. And it shook all of us to the core, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, when all those announcements came out, a lot of us in the industry, um, you know, were, were just... We're upset by it because it, it does affect um, 
all of us in the end. It's our industry, it's our livelihood. Um, and I think anyone would say that uh, about any line of work they're in. When you see uh, jobs disappear in your line of work, it's not good for your line of work at all. So um, there's a lot of talented people there, a lot of great people there, and I'm sure they're gonna land on their feet in different ways. Um, and, and that's what I hope for them and, and try and get through this. But it's just, it, it's awful to see in our industry. Um, and yeah, I just, I think for all, all the people that were affected and, and, you know, and their families, and it's, it's not easy, especially in this time to go through that. So, you know, hopefully for everyone, uh, as I said, um, you know, brighter days are ahead and quickly. Um, and, and we don't have to see days like that in our, in our industry. Media industry is tough as it is. It's uh, it's a tough industry. It's a tough industry financially to get through a pandemic with. We understand that. Um, so, you know, hopefully, as I said, brighter days are ahead and we, we don't have to see days like that happen again in our industry. Where do you think the media industry is heading in the future? Ah, the big question. Everyone wants to know, right? How do you get ahead of it? Um, it has changed so much. And I think, uh, I think this pandemic has changed how people, uh, how people communicate, how people consume content. Um, and, and I think it, it's accelerated a lot of ideas and concepts for, um, you know, that were out there and people thought, oh, I wonder how this will work and, and all this forced some issue into that. So uh, where will we be? Where will it go? I don't know. I know, I really don't. Um, I think the digital continues to grow. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a big, a big element for sure. And, um, you know, you look at how people consume, how they consume uh, on their phones um, is a big thing, the mobile side, but I still think we're going to have a little bit of a circle back to, to, uh, you know, the traditional sit at home and watch in your big screen. And that's certainly the way you like seeing sports. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just, it rapidly changes and the technology catches up so much. So um, I think it's something to, to watch. And now when you look at how things change, you know, in the industry that we just talked about, uh, it's going to force even more ideas and change. So, um, you know, who look at how the podcast world has, has changed things over the last couple of years and, and opened so many doors. So, um, you know, I think there'll be a, a lot to watch moving forward. Last question here. What are you missing most about this NHL 2021 season? Uh, the fans, the fans, you know, and I know we talked about it and I know you're there, but there is nothing like having a rocking building and, and having the crowd back in and, uh, um, and, and we will be there. We'll get there. We'll get back there. Uh, I know it's some days it feels tough to see that or imagine that, but, but it certainly is having the fans in the building, that energy in the building. Uh, that's probably what we miss most right now. So, um, you know, that, that's that's what we want to see back. And I'm sure the fans really do enhance your commentating. Oh, for sure. You ride the energy of the crowd uh, all the time. And and that's one thing I love to do. When, when the buildings are rocking, I want people at home to feel that and, under you know, feel part of it. Feel like you're there. So, um, and that's kind of what we're trying to do right now as well. But, but when, yeah, when the crowd's going, there's, uh, it just fires you up and, and it's just so fun and to be part of that electric atmosphere. So we certainly miss having the fans in the building. Well, I'd like to thank John Bartlett for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you again, John. Hey, it was great, Michael. A lot of fun. Uh, thanks for having me on.